Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. Hey, Becky. Welcome, everybody. Living legend in the house today. Seriously, probably the most impressive pedigree we've had on the podcast, for sure, but it, also a really incredible human. Yeah, I was about to say, since the moment we met our guest today, it has been nothing but warmth. warmth. Oh my gosh, jinx. Um, (laughs) Kindness and just like we're about to have a very empathetic and human conversation. And y'all, we're talking about a Mackenzie Scott gift today. So buckle up. It's going to be really fantastic. Mm -hmm. So I'm delighted to introduce everybody to Anna Marie Arjilagos. She is the president and CEO of Hispanics and Philanthropy. And if you haven't heard of them today, I hope today is just going to illuminate you to this incredible organization. It's a network of foundations and philanthropists that is making impactful investments across the Latinx community in the U.S. and across Latin America. Um, Anna Marie has paved the way for this new era to democratize philanthropy, something that we feel really passionate about here as well. I love that their bolding, bold vision is really creating a new generation of philanthropy that is for by and about the Latino community. So just an impactful organization, so many layers that we want to impact today. But before doing this, um, Anna Marie came from the Ford Foundation. She's been at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, um, and just some incredible organizations like Annie E. Casey Foundation, all those that we hear on NPR, and we say thank you (laughs) for your support. It's a total NPR celebrity lineup of foundations. But she just um, has dedicated her life to just really lifting um, philanthropy, and this conversation today is going to be one that I think is going to stop us all dead in our tracks. She currently lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband, Roger, and Kat Alfie, who we've not met yet. I hope we get to meet before the end of the show. But Anne-Marie, thank you for being here. I'm so honored. And I want to run and show this podcast to my mom. Um, because she was asking, what is it that you do exactly? <laughs> and why? And you make it all sound so wonderful. So thank you for having me here and for making my mama proud. Hi, well, Anna Marie's mom. We're going to give you a little bit of space and shout out today. We thank you, you for raising such boosted. an amazing daughter. Well, would you kind of fill our listeners in and us too? We'd love to hear your story. We're fascinated with how people end up in these really impactful roles. What Talk us through, you know, what led you to the position you're in today? Um, at- Ooh, that's a big question because <laughs> I remember the day. Um, it's when I was living in Miami and it's when, um, you know, like, you know, this has been happening. What we're seeing now with George Floyd and that murder happened in the 1980s in Miami um, and Liberty City went up in smoke. And I remember being in the rooftop of the Omni Hotel. I was a cashier at the pharmacy in the hotel lobby and seeing the whole skyline of the city um, burning. And I'm like, what is going on? I had been raised in a little enclave in Little Havana or in Puerto Rico, you know, I'm half Cuban, half Puerto Rican. And so we were really, we didn't have much, but we like, we, we had a lot of love and we had our little bubble. And I realized what was happening outside of my little bubble that day and that forever I would be working with social justice. So that fire, I like to say that fire that I saw, 
out on the horizon that came into me and I'm kind of fiery around social justice issues and um, it has been very urgent, unfortunately, um, all of my life. Hopefully for my daughter's life, it will be easier and we will get there. But for now, it's been an urgent, um, persistent struggle to get us to where we need to be. Well, we join you in sort of, we're sitting in this revolution of, of, it feels like the veneer has been taken off of the plight of so many people who have been marginalized. And we are leaning heavily into it on this sector because we understand you know, the feelings of being otherized or being left behind anyone who's ever felt left out. And we, I, for one, I know us as a company, we are so proud to lean into this justice movement. And I, and I'm really curious about your journey. Um, just, I'm picturing you on the roof of this hotel. How, how did that fire in your belly lead you into HUD and lead you into all of these different corners leading to this incredible nonprofit that you're sitting in right now? It wasn't easy because, you know, immigrant parents, they want you to be safe and um, they wanted me to have a stable job and to be secure. So the obvious thing was to be a secretary. So my grandpa sent me to secretarial school so I would learn to type. So that was a bad move because I was a little rebellious and I purposely flunked out of secretarial school. <laughs> and that would have been actually a really useful skill because, you know, you do need your You're keyboard. You're still looking for the letters nice these days, right? <laughs> I still type with one the finger. finger typing. Um, but I made my point that I wasn't going to go to secretarial school. So, um, I started off at the community college. I mean, big plug for community college. That's how a lot of our folks get started. And from there, I got myself scholarships into school. I studied something cryptic, international relations, so that they wouldn't say what is, you know, they did say what is that. But, they, you know, of course, it's, if you're not going to be a secretary, then you should be a lawyer or a doctor. And I knew that wasn't for me either. But um, I just happened to... Um, take an internship and it was at a place called Ayuda. It's still here in, in Adams Morgan in Washington, DC. And it was a legal clinic for immigrants doing everything from housing to immigration, domestic violence. And that's where, I mean, I went back, I was an intern there. I was a paralegal there. I was a deputy director there. I kept going back and, you know, for different jobs there, but that's really where I cut my teeth in community organizing. And actually while I was there, we had another, uh, we had the Adams Morgan riots here also because of police violence. Um, That was when I had uh, my daughter. She was just one. And uh, we lived under curfew and tear gas in Washington, DC um, for three weeks. But this has been, something that has uh, been happening for many years. But um, so I started with community organizing. And from there, I went to national organizations like uh, Unidos US, which used to be National Council of La Raza. And from there, I went to the Kennedy School. I went to Harvard because I realized that a young um, woman is really hard for people to get heard. And I felt like I needed those credentials. And it was interesting. Harvard was a great experience. But um, they didn't teach us much in terms of community organizing. We were teaching them. But they taught us words of how how to call what we were doing in a very sophisticated way on the ground and uh, be able to bridge and understanding that bridging and language and uh, makes a really important difference in terms of when you want to bring people together to work together on an agenda. 
Anna Marie went from secretary school to Harvard. And when she got to Harvard, she taught Harvard how to, how to be a community organizer. This is when the greatest I could, story. I was a deputy assistant secretary. So I was a secretary eventually. Okay. <laughs> well, we're really interested in the mission and the impact of Hispanics in philanthropy. I just think this is such a timely topic. I mean, we're looking at what's happening with the migrant crisis down at the border. We're looking at asylum seekers, at refugees. I mean, I, I'm sure anyone who, who is like me has that photo of these children in cages. And it's like, we have, we are in crisis. And I really appreciate what Hispanics and philanthropy is doing to sort of educate about the crisis that we're sitting in. And I think one of the things that you all educated me about that was so shocking is that there are more than 560,000 people on the move right now. But that's over half a million people on the move. So I'd love for you to kind of just hit at a really high level. What is Hispanics and philanthropy doing to sort of mitigate this crisis? How are you pulling in agencies and programs and philanthropists to sort of start to address these really massive issues that are plaguing our country? Great. Um, let's start with why we're here. We started almost 40 years ago, and it was originally what's called the philanthropic serving organization, uh, which means that we're supporting and strengthening the sector. Uh, but my predecessor was very wise, and she knew a long time ago that that wasn't going to be sufficient. And she moved, and I took that and expanded it into not only connecting, convening, educating, but how do we also power up philanthropy with the power of people. And so we're also putting together funds like foundation funds, right? Collaboratives, but we're also aggregating, uh, democratizing, I like to say, philanthropy so that everybody, you guys, myself, my mama, uh, we're all philanthropists, whether you're giving $10,000, $15 million, like Mackenzie Scott, or $10, right? But we're all philanthropists. And so that's what we've been doing on the border. Uh, It's not just the terrible crisis that we have in Central America. Venezuela is the largest refugee dynamic in the, you know, in the whole hemisphere that we've ever experienced in the hemisphere, second only to what's happening in Syria. And um, to a large extent, I mean, when you're talking, you're talking about what's happening in, in, in Mexico, a lot of the Central Americans that are there, but are are leaving because of climate change. They're leaving because of violence. They're leaving because of instability. And that has just played havoc on the whole economy and on people's ability to live. And anybody in their situation would try and figure out how can we provide a safe place for our kids. The Venezuelan crisis is, is horrifying. And, um, People are leaving and they're going wherever they can. In if you go to the borders, and before COVID, we were taking delegations to the border. Uh, folks think that it's only Mexicans and Central Americans, but we were seeing people from Pakistan, from Haiti, from Africa, from from Russia. I mean, there's folks at the border that represent the whole entire world, and um, it's astounding. I'm hoping that at some point we can start taking people back because there's no report, no Facebook feed, no Twitter feed that could really bring alive 
and explain what is happening. I There are no words to describe what is happening. But HIP uh, kicked into action, um, has always kicked into action. I think one of our superpowers is that we're nimble, we're flexible, we, you know, we're problem solvers. We try not to um, stay with like the problem, but like, okay, incrementally, how can we assist and help? And um, that's what we've been doing, really leveraging the power of foundation dollars and more and more individuals that are giving in big and small ways. I think we we ran across an article on your website that stated that only 1% of philanthropic dollars in the U.S. currently go to Latinx organizations. And so when you compare that to the size of the communities that you're serving, I mean, Scrappy with the philanthropy can't even begin to scratch the surface of that. So I wonder if you could kind of lift some of these other topics that are really important that, you know, are so disproportionate, you know, the investment in the communities and are there other things that you could kind of point us to to just paint a picture? That number is so, so sad. Uh, we had done Hispanics and philanthropy had done this study with candid about 10 years ago. And back then it was 1%. So I thought for sure by now it's increased, right. but the number was still 1% uh, philanthropic dollars are going to Latino Hispanic communities. And um, if you go back to 1975, one of our founders, Herman Gallegos did that study in 1975. And back then it was 0.8. Back then we were only like 7% of the population. Today, Hispanics are almost 20% of the population, right? We're the biggest um, minority in the country. We're 60 million and uh, what we're doing with 60 million. Yeah. Imagine if we had a little bit of fairy dust, what we could do. I always think about that in terms of our entrepreneurs and our businesses, because we're so entrepreneurial and a lot of the small businesses um, that are being, uh, that are being created now are by Latinos, but they're doing that with just, you know, leveraging credit card debt with what your sister or your brother can lend you. Um, they don't have access to any of the capital that mainstream folks have. And um, the number that you see with philanthropy, um, that same number is replicated. It's 1%. Actually, it's uh, less than 2% for black and brown combined of venture capital for businesses, Right. For, that's black and brown combined. I think all of philanthropy for all BIPOC is less than 7%. It's, it's a very, it's just an astounding number. So what we're seeing in philanthropy, what we're seeing in the business community, then we've also been seeing it in the federal government, right? The disinvestment. So that's why people are unhappy. That's why you see protests because it's compounded that disinvestment and that's over you know, centuries, decades. Yeah. And wow. I mean, there's just no equity in that. And the fact that the scale of the population boom that is not unable to keep up, you know, with the philanthropy shows just how large the Delta is to me. And it just is another reason of why we have to fight that much harder to equalize, you know, not even just the philanthropy that's offered, but the, the opportunities, the employment opportunities, the pay gap, the how are we helping every member of our society, you know, get promoted, grow, learn, you know, improve. And, you know, I sit there and think about something like COVID-19. And I would love to hear what HIP's response was to COVID-19 and, and what's happening with your racial equity work right now. COVID was really hard because what I wanted to do would just 
sit in the corner and cry and just sort of like, just huddle, right? So you have that instinct. Uh, your other instinct is to go into mama bear and just sort of like <laughs> take care of your family and those around you. And the overriding instinct was, okay, we got to do something. And um, all of our staff was united and we got to do something and how can we uh, work together? So uh, we were very cautious because, you know, this is, all, we know that it's all about a marathon. And I mean, we thought COVID was going to be two, three months. And here we are a year, almost a year and a couple months afterwards. So we didn't want to burn out our staff. So we instituted unlimited sick leave immediately. So people could work, but also take care of their own, no questions asked. And then we went to work just like putting out money as much as we could. Usually as an intermediary, we've usually put out about four to $5 million a year to grassroots organizations. So the foundations usually do the big grants, right? They do like 50, 100. An intermediary like HIP focuses on the grassroots organizations, those smaller nonprofits, those that like need the 5,000, the 10,000, the 15,000, those smaller grants. So that's what we did, a lot of them. And um, I think it was about 800 of them and we put out $12 million. The interesting part of thinking about HIP is that you can also uh, give to organizations that are here in the US, in Puerto Rico, Mexico, across Central and South America. So folks that are really worried about their family elsewhere also give to HIP to get dollars to community organizations uh, down south. But we were working with farm workers. Um, we're doing our last push for farm workers right now, but I think it'll be 5 million to farm workers organizations alone, but also to essential workers, uh, to small businesses. We partner with Google uh, to put $3.5 million into the uh, pockets of uh, small businesses that would have gone out of business. Otherwise, too many went out of business anyways, but at least some of them we were working with. That's through our Power Up Fund. Uh, we worked with migrant and asylum seeking organ, uh, seekers to make sure that they were safe uh, because they were doubly we, we had migration, uh, the MPP program, right, where they're, they have to ask for asylum from the Mexican side or and that was really complicating things with COVID. So, so much um, happened last year and is still happening right now. I'm very, very worried about the, uh, the eviction crisis, which we will probably start seeing the beginnings of in full force in, in June once this moratorium starts um and June expires. That's the next thing that's on the horizon. What's going to happen with all these folks that, you know, haven't been able to work and have all of these bills. They've had a home, but they have these bills that are increasing and increasing. Um, very hard to pay. There's going to be federal dollars for that, but there's a lot of insecurity and and lack of understanding as how to apply for those dollars. And and, um, we saw the same thing with the PPP loans uh, in the first round of PPP loans, which the government, the SBA was putting out less than 9% of those loans were, um, were to BIPOC communities, 9%. Taking a quick pause from today's episode to thank our sponsor, who happens to be one of our favorite companies, Virtuous. You know we believe everyone matters, and we've witnessed the greatest philanthropic movements happen when you see and activate donors at every level, and Virtuous is the platform to help you do just that. 
It's so much more than a nonprofit CRM. Virtuous helps charities reimagine generosity through responsive fundraising. And we love it because this approach builds trust and loyalty through personalized donor engagement. Sound like Virtuous may be a fit for your organization? Learn more today at virtuous.org or follow the link in our show notes. I have to tell you, as hard as this conversation is to hear and and to just know that the road is going to be still much longer and we have to just weather this storm, I am so grateful that to to have you come in here and educate us about what the situation is like for people on the front lines. It gives me a heart of gratitude for what you're doing to lift up these sectors. We've had a lot of these conversations on the podcast. I even think about the Southern Smoke um, episode that we had that was talking about what their foundation is doing to help restaurant workers and people who are working, you know, in in the background of the restaurant industry. Um, so I want to, I just want to commend you for what you're doing because it tells me there's still so much work to do and that it's going to take a community like us, like everyone listening right here to lean in to how we can pull together and make sure that no one is going without, that no one is getting evicted out of their homes. And I also just want to say, well done, HIP. I am really proud of your organization that during this crisis, the immediate first two things that you've that you did was one, you instituted unlimited sick leave immediately for your staff. That is some seriously evolved level of leadership and thinking because automatically I'm thinking that your staff feels safe cared for. And my gosh, do you want to lean into your mission and want to help when someone takes care of you? Yes, you do. And then the second thing was getting to work, trying to really divest whatever you can above and beyond what you're doing nationally, because you understand, um, what this crisis is going to do to people. And I love that you were that nimble. And I love that that is a key theme to your value system. So bravo. And I appreciate your vulnerability that, I mean, we all felt that at different points of 2020 that we just want to kind of go, go to the corner and just hide, (laughs) you know? Um, But it's kind of a turning point of this story and not that this solved all aches and pains, but I do think it's fascinating that, you know, that was one experience of 2020, but another one was getting this call. I don't know if it's a call or a letter. I'd love to hear the story (laughs) of getting this incredible major gift out of the blue from Mackenzie Scott and just like what, what that was like, you know, in the moment, what did, what did you know? What did you not know? And how did, what were kind of the days that kind of unfolded around it? And we're talking about the $4 billion uh, donation that McKenzie Scott made uh, to 384 nonprofits that were addressing the COVID relief and sort of the systemic inequalities that exist in the world. And please spare no details when you tell <laughs> us what that phone call or how that announcement came to be, because we are completely have our bucket of popcorn and we're leaning into this. I, I still like lose my breath um, when I think about this, but you have to understand that she had already made over $1 billion last summer. So I had already said, I'm going to give all my money until a safe is open. And I had already applauded Bravo, an amazing lady. I hope I one day get to meet her um, and tell her my appreciation um, in person. So the last thing I expected was that Mackenzie Scott was making more donations last year. So we've been getting calls, as I said, folks are really generous. And we've been getting calls to try uh, from givers that wanted and were very warm and generous hearted giving dollars out a lot of them too many of them were saying i'm giving you this money but a hundred percent of it has to go to the people in need 
which is wonderful. I really applaud people giving, um, but you can't say 100% of it because somebody has to write the check and right. you know yep. get the money. You need some dollars for the pipes and the bricks and mortar. Um, and so I think that week I was probably a little bit jaded because I had had too many of those calls of like, I'm going to give you this money, but a hundred percent of it has to go to the people in need. I'm like, okay, fine. Give me the money. <laughs> but, um, I, I, I was really, really worried about budgets and how to make budgets because, you know, you still have all of these staff that you, you know, want to make sure they're feeling uh, supported as well. And so I get this call on a Friday afternoon from a really lovely lady. And she says, McKinsey, you know, we've been watching you aligned with your values. We want to do more of it faster. And I'm like, great. I'm expecting, you know, $50,000 would be fantastic. And then she said the number 15 million. And I started hyperventilating. And I was like, how could it be? Um, I just didn't believe it. Um, and I literally was hyperventilating and I literally had no no words. You have no words. There are no words. What, what do you say? But then I said, and what do you need me to send you? <laughs> uh, I like a five-page proposal with several years of audits. And they're like, nothing, just your bank account. And that's where my brain turns to like, okay, this is a hoax. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> Wire this money. This is not, it should not be this easy. Yes. I was like, nah, okay, fine. <laughs> Next. But it, it wasn't a hoax. It was real. And, um, you know, it's so amazing because it's a kind of philanthropy that, um, as you saw, there was a lot of vetting that was happening unbeknownst to us, but it's the kind of philanthropy that says, use this money how you see fit. Um, and there's not strings. It's just how you see fit. It, I used to work, as you know, at the Ford Foundation for Jaron Walker and, and all his brilliance. Um, he was saying, we're going to invest in good ideas that Great people are leading at wonderful institutions. You know, if I have the three eyes, ideas, institutions, and individuals, I'm going to trust them because it allows you to be nimble. We had work plans, and, you know, and strategies for last year. All of that got thrown away and we had to be nimble and start again. And we had all of these metrics for those work plans that needed to be happy you know, that we needed to balance, it would have been a very different organization. And so bravos and applause to, you know, those like McKinsey that are pivoting. And I mean, that's one of the trends that we saw last year. And I'm hoping that that trend was not a one-off, but something that continues, which is, we trust you, here's general operating support, run. And we will run because then that allows me to hire the best people, really creative, uh, smart, organized, um, and we can figure it out. I think the thing that's striking me the most is that quote that you just said about it allowed us to run. And when you're in a pandemic and you have over half a million people that are on the move, I mean, I'm seeing this, you see, we have got to sprint up beside them. And we cannot be thinking about how are we going to keep the lights on and how are we going to pay for the postage to get you this receipt? And I know we have a huge audience base of people who actually work within the nonprofit sector, but we have others who listen in that are philanthropists, that are volunteers. And my message here to you is if you have the, if you love your nonprofit, if you have complete trust in their ability 
try to take those restrictions away as well as you can because it allows them to run at these problems. We need um, risk capital to be able to scale, to be able to to try things that have never been done before. And this is what I love about Mackenzie Scott. She threw out the old playbook of fundraising. She threw away that concept of overhead as being a negative and said, do what you need to do to solve the problem. And that is how philanthropy is going to be able to solve the world's biggest crises. So absolutely love that story. Love that you I'm that I'm picturing you hyperventilating because that is what I would have been doing. I wanted to pick up on something that you said, Becky, because in her medium article, she did talk about the vetting process and that's been fantastic because there have been some foundations and some donors that like are saying, Oh, okay. This organization has been vetted really, really well. So maybe where they might have been apprehensive before, we've had some donors that are more interested in us now, um, which is which is great because they saw well-managed and impactful. And that combination is, is good to see. Well, I wonder, could you kind of share your experience has been such a, a cool journey. Is there a moment that philanthropy has stuck out to you? Um, that has kind of resonated as part of your story? A moment where I see philanthropy at play. I mean, I think we talked earlier about people-powered philanthropy. I mean, I was in Puerto Rico right after Hurricane Maria. That was people-powered philanthropy. That like sticks to you. People helping each other, mutual aid. You've seen that now with COVID um, as well. So many people, I mean, there's more philanthropy now than there was five years ago. There's a lot more money. People are being more and more generous. That's the kind of philanthropy that moves me. You know, equally amazing was the the sacrifices and the giving that we saw from essential workers during during COVID. And that's also generosity and that's giving as well. And that kind of giving touches me more than the givings of foundations because that's professional philanthropy and it's, it's important. And all of us that have worked in professional philanthropy, we're doing it because, you know, our heart and our spirit, but that day-to-day philanthropy in the end, that's, that's, that's very moving. I agree. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I I think that you would just have a mind-blowing one good thing to add because one of our last questions that we ask all of our guests is to share one good thing with us. It could be a hack or a mantra. Maybe it's a life lesson. What's your one good thing? If there's one good thing, I think we all have to practice self-care. Um, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Mm, because it's all of this work is a marathon. And if you don't practice self-care, like in the airplane, right, you can't help anybody else around you. And so I guess we're starting from the premise that we're here to leave the world a little bit better than when you found it, but you can't do that unless you're practicing self-care. And then that has ripple effects to those around you and those around you and those around you. Um, Just like we're doing unlimited sick. We're still doing the unlimited sick leave because people are, I mean, a lot of people are still hitting walls right now. Um, I had a wall um, myself a couple of weeks ago when I'm still here on a rainy cold day in Washington, DC. And, um, my friends called me from Puerto Rico and they're all on the beach having a picnic, socially distanced, of course. But I was like, oh, I miss you all. Right. And so um, we're still going through walls. There's still people dying every day. 
Uh, we have this fourth variant. So we just have to practice self-care in organizationally and individually. Oh, I love that. And I love the visual of apply your own oxygen mask first in an airplane that you brought up before you can help someone else. And you're exactly right. If we're not pouring into ourselves, we're never going to be able to pour into our missions to the level we know that we could. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we got to grow the one percent. How can Help our us, listeners yeah, get involved? How can in we this grow the one percent? Oh, there is an answer to that. I love uh, it. You need to start with trustees. I don't mm. know if you've looked at the boards of our foundations, boards of our corporations, our boards in general, but the boards of our foundations are overwhelmingly white, and. They're well-meaning and lovely people, but some people have to give up privilege and give up their seat. And we need to make our foundations look more like the people that they're serving. And this is not just a nice thing to do. Foundations, if you are going to achieve mission, need to look like the people that they're serving. It's not because certain people are smarter or less smarter. It's, it's lived experience. Some things look rational or irrational, depending on what your lived experience has been. And I think that our boards need to reflect the diversity of our communities. And so you start with the boards. Um, uh, That ripples down into our CEOs and that ripples down into our staff. Too few staff and CEOs are also um, BIPOC communities. This is slowly changing, but very, very slowly changing. We need to accelerate that. We need to start with the boards. That was a brilliant, brilliant brilliant suggestion. And I would also submit this. If you're someone who listens to the We Are For Good podcast quite often, you'll see that one of the trends for corporate giving is that you need to have a diverse makeup of leadership, of staff, of administration and funders are now starting to pay attention to nonprofits and those who are not showing equal representation, those are that are not being inclusive, those that are not creating a seat for everyone at the table. I really believe, and I have to tell you, I'm here for it. (laughs) Those organizations are going to be the ones left behind because corporations know that their, their um, product, their service, their people are best served when everyone has a seat at the table. Not a moral imperative. They understand that it's not a moral imperative. It's not something that's nice to do. It's a business imperative. They're not, the corporations understand that they are going to be left behind economically. Um, and so our foundations, you know, foundations have no natural, shall we call it, no, no natural predators. Um, they, so there's not a, a push to change, but we need to remind them, if you want to achieve mission, this is how you achieve mission. Otherwise, you're going to be left behind. And I love, I don't want to miss something that you said was that some people need to look around and say, I need to give up my seat. Oh, I love that. You either need to give up a seat or you need to make the table bigger. But it, I mean, mathematically, it doesn't work otherwise. Right. I have to push also that it's not just one seat. You can't have a token one seat because I know plenty of boards that do have one Latino, one African-American, one Native, you know, it's not just, it's not a question of putting one because the people still feel lonely. <laughs> I have a trustees initiative that I'm doing where you have a lot, you have trustees from across the country, 
But these are folks that are like, I'm the only one. When I say an idea, nobody says, oh, that's a great idea. People just stare at me and say, yeah, huh? And don't get thing. it. You need to have more than one. You don't yeah. cure the problem with having one. HIP has, and I will put this in the show notes, but HIP has a human rights summit that's coming up at the end of this month. Um, you could check it out on their Instagram. And so if you are drinking the Kool-Aid of which Anna Marie is pouring, of which I am, and this conversation jives with you, then really encourage you to participate in the online human rights summit. I mean, it's going to be exchanging experiences, lessons learned, discovering best practices on people. And it's really, again, about making sure that everybody has a seat at the table. So that's an early pitch. And I also want you to connect us to how else can people connect with HIP? How can they find you on social channels? How can they uh, register for this? We're optimists. We're eternal optimists. So we're going to have our annual conference in Los Angeles in um, September. And well, so... It'll be socially distanced and it's, you know, usually our conferences are 600 people. This one will be 150, but if you're interested in LA come um, in September to uh, visit the HIP conference, it's also going to have a hybrid portion uh, that will be virtual. So those of you that are not ready to um, travel, but I'm really ready to see real people. Um, I love my husband, but I told him I've only seen you for a whole year. I need to see something else. Um, so Indeed. that's um, check out our conference, which will be September. And uh, we were talking about everyday givers. You can do that on hipgive.org, which is our crowdfunding site. It's the only free and bilingual crowdfunding site um, across the Americas. And there's lots of fantastic projects on there which you can donate to. And if you're interested in uh, learning about HIP, you can also sign up to our website, which is hiponline, H-I-P-online.org. And on there, sign up for our listserv and we will um, be keeping you abreast of everything. Our social media is fantastic. So follow us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. And we are pushing things there that um, I think are really exciting. Um, and those of you that are job seekers, we have job jobs Fridays for if you're looking for a job in philanthropy. So there's lots that we're doing. Just follow us wherever is your favorite platform. And I love your Instagram handle is be hip give. <laughs> Playing off that. <laughs> Very hip clever. <laughs> and it's a great account. It's, it's chock full of facts and ways to get involved. So if this conversation resonates, resonated with you, please lean in. They've got a great newsletter. Um, I think there's a lot of work to be done here and many hands can make light work. So um, thank you for coming on, Anna Marie. Thank you for just keeping awesome. us informed, inspiring us. And we are here to just tell you that you're doing incredible, incredible work. We support your team. And um, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you. It's been so much fun. Thanks for listening to today's conversation with Anna Marie. We hope it inspired you to consider how you can uplift our Latino friends through your service and philanthropy today. You probably hear it in our voices, but we love connecting you with the most innovative people to help you do more for your mission. We'd love for you to come join our good community. It's free, and you can think of it as the after party to each podcast episode. Sign up today at weareforgood.com backslash hello. One more thing. If you love what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a podcast rating and review? It really does help more people find us and join our good community. Our production hero is a champion for all people, Julie Confer. Hello. And our theme song is Sunray by Remy Boersboom. Thanks for being here, everyone.
Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. We can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.